So it's another brand new episode of the Value Nigeria podcast. It's a privilege for me to bring this um, show to all the teaming listeners um, every other week. Um, how are you doing? It's the festive period. Um, we're doing this recording on the 26th day of December at about 9 a.m. Nigerian time. And it's, it's been a wonderful Christmas celebration. Hope you've been able to plan and, you know, make out your plans and, you know, still manage your finances in a way that you've not gone over your budget. Um, this podcast is one in which we share financial tips and, you know, wealth, wealth building lessons from various professionals. Um, and today is not going to be any different. We also have a seasoned professional in the house this morning that will be having a conversation and our conversation today will be quite unusual. It's one that is not um, well spoken of in the space of financial or wealth management. And we'll be talking about how your pensions can help you build your wealth. It's quite an unconventional topic. And I'm glad to have a wonderful guest who is seasoned and very experienced, even in pension management, on the show tonight. Uh, my guest had his first degree from the University of Ibadan where he graduated from with a BSc in computer science. Uh, so he's one of those unconventional people who started out in the sciences but ended up in finance, as we'll get to see along the way. Uh, for his education as well, he's had his master's in business administration, that is his MBA, uh, which he recently completed from the Amadou Bello University. He's also a CFA charter holder, which um, always excites me when I hear people are CFA charter holder and even particularly people who were able to um, clear all the stages in one go. I always, I'm always very excited and, you know, quite in awe of such people. So my guest is falls in that bracket today. Uh, by way of his professional background, um, my guest has worked as an investment research analyst um, and a re an investment research associate as well with Affinity Capital Management um, so he's been in the business for a very long time. He'll tell us more about that. So my guest also presently works as a fund manager with Stanbic IBTC, and he'll get to tell us a little bit more about his role with that firm uh, as we go along. Um, he's very passionate about education, which is obvious by him taking on educational roles, even right from when he was in university and even now, uh, where he works part-time with a... It's a teaching firm. He'll get to tell us more about that himself as well. Uh, my guest is no other person than Mr. Oluwashi Olusonya. It's a pleasure to have this chat with you today, sir. Thank you for creating the time for us. Yeah, hi, Mr. Um, Ajibola. Thank you very much for um, the invitation to the podcast. Um, so I've also been a fan of the podcast, listening to one or um, two of the previous show. So when I got your message, I was like um, happy to be part of the podcast. Yeah, quite an introduction you have done for me there. I can see you, you have actually taken your time to do some deep dive. Yeah, but all good, all good. Yeah, interesting. I'm happy to be on the podcast. Thank you very much. Oh, th thank you very, very much, sir. Your, your, your words are very, very kind and very encouraging. It's good to know that you are actually even known about the podcast before we reached out. So thank you very much. It just goes to say that the quality of guests that we've had in the past speaks for itself because I'm sure it's not about me. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. 
just to know you better, I know I've said quite a few things already. If you don't mind just adding some color, maybe some of your personal background, what growing up was like for you, just to tell us a few things more. We would really appreciate that, sir. Yeah, most of the time I just, I'll just quickly take it back, maybe from ISIS, just give a concept here. And so from ISIS, I was a science person, typically when I was in school, then my best courses there were mathematics and further math. So more of like, I really, really love playing with numbers. But then because I was a science student, obviously, so going into the university, because as I did, you'd always write jams, and then when you write your jam, they give you the options of selecting for courses. So the courses then I selected were typically science courses. So because of that, I had to do science course in the university, typically computer science. So so for some quite um after finishing computer science yeah, so the first term I worked with was supposed to typically be an IT support role. Yeah, basically to just do what I do in computer science and a bit of programming. But then while working in the same as an IT support staff, I started having some engagement with the guys in finance, then typically it was an investment research house. And then I started seeing how they were playing with numbers. So typically for me in fine for me in finance, I would basically mean that most of the things we do are typically with numbers, doing forecasts, between valuations and all. So I seeing what they did and I felt like, okay, this actually looks like a lot of numbers and it was quite interesting to me. So that was when I started developing a, a, an interest in finance. So immediately, once you, once you see something you have passion for, it just resonates with you. So that was when I just started, okay, let me also explore this finance. So typically then I started now and um, taking the CSA program. I started, started within the CSA program. So it was quite interesting. So that was how the journey from what, um, more like moving from computer sciences into finance. And, and manage it and over time got in some other degrees with my MBA in finance and yes that, that has been the journey so far Alright, perfect, perfect. If you don't mind, I would just like to dig in a little bit into your transition from sciences into finance uh, You've talked okay. about you know, relating with people on the finance side, getting interested with that and then picking up the CFE um, how easy was it for someone with an entirely different background in the sciences just to pick up the decide on doing the CFE exam, start preparing for it, and clear it all in one go each? Um, what was that journey like? Did you need to have formal, like, um, was it just a personal self-study, or did you need to go to, like, um, educational centers to get extra lessons or something? So, my, my, my CFE and finance journey was, kind of a bit interesting because to be honest, the first time I actually picked up a book in finance, week, I was not even reading from the perspective of writing an example. I was more of like reading just to be able to actually get to know the field, like get to actually understand. So like coming from someone that I did not know what a bond was, I did not know what equity was. So at the initial stage of reading those materials, you know, it was actually from a knowledge this perfectly. So, but basically, what I did not know was that while I was actually reading for knowledge, right, technically, I was now reading more like preparing for the exam. So apparently, because I was actually enjoying what I was reading, then so I started with fixing commodity in the material. Then over time, I started enjoying it, started moved into financial reporting, and then someone just now told me that, why not just who take the exam since you are more of like enjoying this? But that was when I then registered for the exam. And apparently, because I was actually reading for knowledge over time. 
the exam kind of like more of like resonated well with me. So that was like the journey. So obviously, when I then registered for the exam, I knew that okay, now there's an exam purpose. I need to get more prepared. So as I then, I then took some extra tutorial classes and some new concepts and go. So that was how the journey was typically. But then over time, I would see all these days feedback from one of the students. I would be like, ah, so you move from computer science to finance. More, more, more people want to move into tech. How come you have courses from um, tech to finance? But for me, right, typically the thing was like, number one, there was a passion for finance. Yeah, and there's still nothing that you face tomorrow. I could always do venture back into computer science as a, as a programmer, right? And it's even, these are kind of words whereby you need more knowledge to be able to actually adapt to in the society. So technology, finance, it's all encompassed. So that's it for me. All right. Thank, thank you very, very much. That That's a huge encouragement to people like um, myself and I'm sure a couple of others out there who also wish to, at one point or the other, venture into um, taking the CFA exam. So that's a huge encouragement for us. If you could do it, then definitely with more efforts from our own parts, then definitely we can do it as well. And I like the word you used, which is passion. Um, there's nothing too difficult if one is passionate about it, if one is committed to that course, and your life is a testimony to that. Um, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Now, moving into the core of what we were hoping to talk about, I've, I've given thought to a lot of things and looking at the average Nigerian, the average Nigerian is one who works like, you know, the nine to five, does a lot of work, earns so little, struggles to save or put anything aside. And it's almost like a rat race continuing from earning to spending, entering into debt, and, and it's almost a never ending negative cycle. However, I've noticed mm. that one of the only, or one of the major contributors to wealth for the average Nigerian now, whether they are conscious about it or not, is actually their pension contribution. And that's for people who work in firms where, you know, they enroll them in the pension scheme. Um, most times, just because the money is taken out of your salary from source, we are not conscious about it. And many people don't even realize that um, something like that is going on in the background and the wealth can build and hopefully when they are retiring, if the managers have done a good job, they can retire with at least a, a pot of fortune. Uh, do you mind just sharing a little bit about the role that pensions play in, in the wealth of the average Nigerian, in the wealth building process for the average Nigerian? Okay, yeah, very interesting question. So for me, right, um, when I speak to a lot of people and sometimes the first thing people always ask is me, ask me that entry, I have XYZ amount of money. What can I invest in? That's typically the first question. When they see you are an investment manager, the first question what can I invest in? So the way I would always answer that question by default would be I'll first of all ask you, do you actually have a pension account? So most people actually don't really understand the importance of pension, right? Or the actual power of compounding. So one of the key things that your pension helps you to do is help you to be able to accrue interest with, 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 with the power of compounding over years, typically between an average person who typically saves for ab about 20 years, 30 years before retirement. So because of that power of compounding, it typically helps you to build wealth. Unlike the regular asset or asset management or investment where typically maybe you invest a certain amount of money and within one year or two years, so it always be 
everything to liquidate that amount of money. So typically, your pension account is actually one of the key ways of um, growing your wealth. And also because of like typically the measures that have been put in place, more of like by the regulators in this suspension that have actually helped to at, at least streamline the industry just to at least ensure that um, as much as investment is done, and um, the actual capital, more of like the actual principal, actually saved that. So there have been lots of um, deep, deep dive into the risk analysis of what pension fund administrators can actually invest in. So because of that, number one, you have the added variety that your amount of money which you have been saving over time is actually saved. And for like individuals that actually don't really understand the concept of investing. So because of that, you are actually not able to go into dubious investment. So typically your pension, at least what we have now, is more of like this. And because of the power of compounding over certain number of years, it's typically able to be able to grow well into the future. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, you've talked about PENCOM that's the Pension Commission of Nigeria, if I'm correct, and the role they played in sanitizing and you know transforming the the pensions industry. Um, I, I remember yeah. when I started a major job or my major job back in Nigeria. Um, at at the onboarding, I was just given a form to fill for pension, and there was a list of pension firms, and I was just asked to tick anyone and. So I, I just looked at it and I said, okay, so Stambik, okay, that's the biggest name on the list. And I just ticked Stambik. Um, so I can I can boldly say that you are probably one of the people managing my pensions, <laughs> my pension fund in Nigeria at present. <laughs> but that's just by the way. Uh, for most people, just that selection process, that's the limit. That's as much as they know about the pension scheme. And, you know, it just goes into their subconscious from that moment. Um, do you mind just telling yeah. us a little bit about the changes that has happened in the pension management industry, uh, particularly the impact of the Pensions Reform Act of 2014 and how that revolutionized hmm, the industry? <laughs> okay, very okay, interesting. So the truth of the matter is that pension has actually been around for a long, long, long time in Nigeria. So typically the first um, kind of pension in Nigeria would be dated as far back as 1961, called the National Providence Scheme. So I'm sure most of the guys might not be around at this time again, 1961. But then over the last couple of years, there have been different reforms. So after the, after the National Providence Scheme, then you had the National Nigeria Social Insurance Trust Fund, then SIT, which was also more of like um, a revolution of the National Providence Fund. But then of recent, what we now had um, was um, the 2014 Reform Act, which was emanating from um, the limitations of the of the then civil service pension scheme. So one of the key things before 2014, dating back to 2004, was initially for civil service, meaning the guys that were working in, in government parastatals, right? Um, the kind of pension they were subjected to then was more was something we refer to as a defined benefit scheme. So where a defined benefit scheme typically refers to is that your employer will typically make provision for your pension payment as a liability on their book. As a civil servant, typically the liability is supposed to be the government to actually make provision for that pension payment on every year's budget. But then what you now add over time was that because of um, um, the government, then they were actually not really, really 
paying attention to pension. So most time that portion of liability that should have been budgeted in the government expenditure was usually used up. So because of that, you I would actually now have pensioners actually struggling in the civil service to actually get their payments at the time of retirement because typically the liability was on the books of government and the government obviously we are not making provisions for these payments. So because of this, there has to be some form of reform which started in 2004 and was fully completed in 2014. So now what we now typically have as part of the act from 2014 reform was and the contributory pension scheme. So what the contribution pension specifically means now is that it is typically moving away from defined benefits where it is a liability on the books of the government or the employer more now to a direct contribution. The direct contribution will typically mean now that as at every month, the employer has to actually make an actual payment into the retiree's account. So unlike where you have added as a liability to define benefits, now there has to, have to be an actual contribution called your CPS into the employer's account. So that was one, one of the major highlights of the Reform Act in 2014. So that was also included in the Act was also things like your voluntary capital um, and, the, and the kind of investable asset pension companies were are able to invest in. And also notably as part of the Reform Act, right? So the pension um, industry was more like now um, reorganized into and, and like four or five main bodies was, was actually now brought in just to be able to ensure that um, pension assets or pensioners can actually be, be managed in such a way that they are actually able to get their money over time. So as part of the act, we had the regulators which were set up in this, then was PENCOM, then you have the pension fund administrator. So your pension fund administrator will typically be your, your fund manager, typically the likes of, of Sandy KRM and so that would typically manage the assets. Then you have your pension fund custodian was also set up as part of the so your pension fund custodians are actually the guys that actually hold the assets in custody. So as much as the fund managers are the one managing your fund, the, the actual assets are actually fitted with the custodian. And then you actually also have your employer, which is actually your employer, which is mandated to pay a portion, which is typically 10% of the annual pay of the employer into the pension account every month. And then you also have your life insurance company which um, employees at the time of retirement can decide to use their lump sum to actually purchase a insurer and an annuity for themselves. So this way, like typically the, the set of emanating from the pension reform as in 2014. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Um, it's refreshing to see all the positive changes that has gone on in the pensions industry it's almost becoming a thing of the past because it seems we are phasing that out gradually. Um, you know, seeing pensioners on TV, going on strikes, saying that, you know, struggling to get their pensions. But it's good to see that that industry has been sanitized and hopefully that will become a thing of the past uh, very, very soon as more, more and more people enroll onto the new PFA schemes that are ongoing. Um, now... Yeah. For most people who I believe will probably just be like myself, um, the, the extent of their knowledge about pensions and their involvement is just when they select whoever is managing their pensions. Most people don't even check on it. Most people are not conscious about it. However, I know that when you sign on to the pension scheme, there are various, it's, it's called a multi-fund structure 
to the pensions. I know there is, a, I think, Fund 1, Fund 2, Fund 3, and Fund 4, if, if I'm using the correct terminology. And I know each of mm. them have, um, you know, peculiarities and differences. There, there are ways the structure is, is, um, is created. Do you mind just sharing a little bit about this multi-fund structure to the pension scheme and how retail investors or how the common or the young Nigerian might be able to position himself strategically to make the most of their pension. Okay. And so the multi-fund structure is a framework that aims to align the age and risk profile of RSA holders. So typically what we observe, what we observe is that as pensioners grow older, their risk appetite typically drop. Their risk appetite meaning their ability or willingness to take risk. So that is what your multi-fund structure typically helps individuals to naturally solve. So typically, when a new person typically you join you join the workforce around your early twenties. So when you join the workforce at, at around maybe 22, 25 years old. So because of the fact that you have a long-term horizon, your long-term horizon typically meaning you can still work for like 20, 30 years. So what you typically be put in a kind of fund that is more aggressive, more aggressive in terms of LM taking more risk just to be able to generate more return. Obviously because of the fact that you are still a young person and you are still able to um, aggressively pursue return. So that is what your multi-fund structure helps you to do. So those different funds, typically from fund one, fund two, fund three, fund four, and fund five, they are more of like um, different criteria depending on the age of the individual investor. So normally, when you enter um, the pension scheme, you typically, by default, be put into your fund two. So fund two is typically a balanced fund that is more um, capital preservation which is more of a capital preservation scheme. So the differences in these different funds, as I mentioned, number one is the age at which you are eligible to join the fund and also the kind of investable assets that each of the funds can invest in. So for your fund two, typically, um, the fund manager, if, if an individual is in fund two, the fund managers are allowed to do about 20% to 65% in variable income. So what variable income typically means is that income and um, instruments that are usually that are marked to market on a day-to-day basis, typically the likes of equity, the likes of the fair value portion of the fixed income instruments will typically be the be recorded as variable income. So for a fund two, the fund managers are allowed to do between twenty percent to fifty-five percent as variable income. But then going to like the very, very um, risk averse fund. Let's, let's use a fund four, for example. So, a fund four is a retiree fund. A retiree fund, so typically, obviously, a, a, a retiree is, does not have enough risk capital to be able to take some more risk. So, because of that, the it does not want any volatility in its income. So, because of that, the amount of variable income that is just, that the fund manager is allowed to do on that kind of fund is just only 10%, just to be able to reduce volatility. So that is actually the concept of multi-fund structures, trying to position um, risk averseness versus the age of individual that are in the, that are in the scheme. So the older you typically become, the lesser risk you're able to take, and obviously also be moving from the individual fund as you typically age. 
So once an individual gets to the age of 50, you are naturally you are moved from your phone two to phone three. So for people that are lesser than 49 years old, you can decide to opt for phone one or phone two. But once you are over 50 years, you are, you are by default moved to phone three. And once you retire, you are moved to the ultra conservative phone four. So that's basically the concept of your multi-phone structure. Wow, thank you very much for that education, sir. So if I understand you clearly, Fund 1 takes more risk with your contributions and may likely, with the keyword being may, generate more returns than a Fund 2, which is a lot more conservative, and a Fund 3, which is even more conservative, all the way up to Fund 4, which is the most conservative from what you've said. Can can an individual that then has, maybe understands what risk is, understands that maybe has... Um, other plan, maybe a business or something else that they can fall back on should that risk materialize? Can they decide to rather rather than move, stay on fund one, which has the potential of generating more returns and more compounding in future rather than be moved um, along the fund as they age? So we get this question like every now and then. <laughs> so, but thank God, thank God for the regulator. So the regulators are actually mandated that once you are above 49 years, once you eat that 50 mark, you must be moved into fund 3. And this is done just so as to ensure that at least you have a, a good retirement. So nobody wants to jeopardize the retirement of any pensioner. So because of that, it is actually mandated that once you eat the 50 mark, you must be moved into fund 3. But then the thing, the good thing will still be for if one has good information, right, you can still, you will still have been able to enjoy at least the benefit of point one or point two for at least some number of years before you eat your, your 50. Obviously, say you, had, you have this information at like 35 years old, you can typically still enjoy the benefit of aggressive pursuit of the sun for at least the next 15 years before you eat your 15, your 15 years mark. So that's typically the way it is. Oh, perfect. So if you are below 50, you may be able to benefit or you, sh- you should be able to benefit from Fund 1, even though you are naturally enrolled on Fund 2. Now, for someone who wants to en- enjoy Fund 1, what's the process? Or I-, I know you might be speaking specifically for your own um, um, PFA, but generally, what's the process of specifying that uh, move me to Fund 1, at least while I'm still less than 50? So it's, it's no more than just reaching out to your PSA by email, just telling them that and you'd like to move from point two to point one. So your PSA before now, they obviously know your age and they know how long you have been and um, you have been they know your contribution so far. So it's more of like just sending a mail or a request that you want to move from point two to point one. So but then the regulator just allow people to move just one by year. So typically once you move once you make a request for movement, you are only allowed to move after the next 12 months. So that's just more like just sitting out to your face and, and it's done as far as you are less than 50 years old. All right, perfect, perfect. Um, my managers will definitely be hearing from me in the next couple of <laughs> in the next couple of days, moving me to Fund 1, which I, I believe I, I still have the long runway and should be able to benefit from uh, taking a higher risk with my contribution so far. Um, yeah, exactly. Now, while speaking, you made mention of um, the voluntary contribution. Um, 
I, I would like you to shed a little bit more light on that. Um, what's the normal okay. contribution like for everybody? And then what then is this voluntary contribution and what are the benefits of it? So according to the part of the pension reform act in 2014, right, um, it means that employers must mandatorily put um, 18% of the tax into their RSA account. So depending on how much you obviously receive every month, 18% of that amount is supposed to go into your pension account. But then what you now typically see is that some, some individuals might actually see that that 18% might actually be small and they typically want to actually increase that amount. So um, over the couple, last couple of months, we did some form of simulation. And then we see that for you as an individual, so let's assume that for you as an individual, maybe your 18% typically amounts to like 60,000 monthly for your, um, for your, for your RSA contribution every month by your employer. Now, if you, if you continue that 60,000 contribution, assuming a, a long run rate of 10%, right? That 60,000 will typically amount to about 10 million in the next 10 years. So if you contribute 60,000 monthly, that amount is typically accrues to about 10 million in the next 10 years at 10% long rate. Now, if for you as an individual, you feel that this 10 million might actually be small and you feel you actually want this amount of money to grow fast, faster than, than it is. So you allow the option to actually now add an, a particular voluntary contribution to the additional 18% that your employer is typically remitting. So imagine that you... For this example, you are now you decide that you want to add an additional fifty thousand every month to your pension payment. So that will typically raise you to hundred thousand every month. And with that, you, are, you can grow your eventual RSA balance at, at, at the end of ten years from the initial ten million to about twenty point five million, which is actually a good thing. So that is like the importance of your VC. So it helps you to be able to also enjoy the benefit of compounding interest at the tax rate. With. So because of that, you are able to aggressively and grow your RSA balance in anticipation of retiring there. Wow, thank you very much. So th- that's quite a huge advantage. So you can take advantage of you know compounding over a long time. It, it sounds almost yeah. like a kind of savings. So you can just decide that, okay, now I want to be saving my money, but I want to save it in a place where I won't be able to touch it um, until I'm retiring. And then the PFA does the investment for you and then that compounds over time. Now, assuming somebody wants to take advantage of this, who do we speak to? Do we, is it to our employer that remits much more than the 8% I'm remitting uh, from my salary every month or is it to the PFA that we speak to? Who do we speak to? So the conversation also has to start from your PFA. So different um, PFA would also have their guidelines as the section of the voluntary contribution um, account for you. So typically, you have to try to reach out to your PSA because a particular account has to be set up. So your VC account typically is somewhat different to the regular contribution account. And why that is so? Because, so for your VC, right, you are, it's more of like a individual savings account, as you have mentioned. People are also at the um, liberty of making some withdrawal from your VC. So online, like your pension account that is regulated and you are not allowed to at least touch the amount. But for your VC, you have the liberty to more of like withdraw some amount of money. Typically, the regulations believe that for money that you have contributed for the last two years, 
into your voluntary contribution account, you are able to withdraw about 50%. So imagine that for, for two years, I've been able to contribute, say, 200,000. It means that after two years, you're able to withdraw 100,000 from that 200,000 in your business. Obviously, you'll be charged tax for the withdrawal because the whole idea of business is to not touch the money, but at least you still deliver the liberty of your business payment. So that's somewhat different between your business and your somewhat contribution. So because of that, a VC account has to be specially created by your um, PSA account. So you have to reach out to your PSA. All right, perfect. Um, you also talked about tax benefits there, which is something that the VC voluntary contribution, I think, can give you, which is that it reduce, it may reduce the total amount of your tax bill, your personal income tax, in the short run. However, mm-hmm. in the long run, you may you may have to pay back there. Uh, Okay, so, so to just clarify that, okay. right? So the tax benefit, so typically your pension contribution and um, by your employer is also tax-free, right? Okay. So your voluntary contribution, considering that it is also seen as a form of tax at the initial stage, it is also tax-free. And the whole idea is that while, while some kind of penalties please when you withdraw, is just to be able to make people um, not to be you just to discourage people from actually withdrawing that amount of money which you are actually stipulated as um, a pension payment. So I think it is just more of like a way to discourage people. So it should it could be taxed if you're able to hold that amount of money for a longer period of time, more than five years, I think. Yeah. Perfect. So tax efficiency comes in the longer you leave your voluntary contribution uh, to compound, which is perfect. Uh, now, at the beginning, exactly. I, I shared the story of how I chose my own pension fund manager, which is just looking at a list and looking for the biggest name on that list and just ticking the list. Uh, for somebody today who maybe who is starting employment or who ha- now is listening to you and can be armed with knowledge to do this correctly, what would you recommend that the average employee looks out for in any PFA before signing up to their services? Okay. So there's, there are two legs to this conversation, right? There's a short-term leg and there's a long-term leg. So obviously, because um, pension investment is a long-term thing, so like the long-term leg would even be the most important to focus about. So coming, talking first as to the short-term leg. So for the short-term leg, there's something um, PENCOM has actually stipulated um, that all PSAs actually release a report on the return they generate on a week-to-week basis. So typically, because of that, you have what we, we call the leak table. So your leak table is just supposed to highlight the performance of all the PSAs for a particular period. So typically, more of like all the PSAs, the stipulate the return they have been able to generate at every point in time. So this report, I think, is usually circulated every quarter. And so, so most pensioners, they are always looking forward to seeing this leak table just to be able to see that, ah, Okay, my pension fund, my pension fund is actually way high up and has generated this XYZ amount of return. So that is the short term leg conversation. And since 2020, it brings to the conversation of, um, there's something called transfer window. So what you now typically have is because pensioners are typically constantly monitoring this return, pensioners, obviously, because sometimes when they look at the the leak table and they feel that maybe there's a, a particular PSA that is way higher on the table. They might be encouraged or they might be 
motivated to quickly switch their pension fund from the from their pension fund that is actually maybe low on the table to the one that is high on the table. But the, what we usually like tell pensioners is that they actually have to be careful with this decision making process because obviously your pension investment is actually long term. You should not make your decision just based on a three month or six month performance by your PSA. So this brings us to the term of long term performance generation. So there's something called your long term wait for each pension fund. So for you as a pensioner, right, what you should be more concerned to should be the long term performance of your pension fund. Your long term performance typically more of like your three, five, ten years performance of your pension fund. Just be able to make the decision as to whether you want to actually move your fund to another pension fund or not. And not just a three month, six month and mixable conversation. Thank you very, very much. That was quite an education. Uh, what you have said tallies very well as well with people who invest in mutual funds or in you know euro bond funds with various asset managers. Um, you might be tempted to make changes to your investment based on short-term information. Rather, a long-term approach would probably be more beneficial to you to make such a decision. So that's very, very important. Thank you very much, sir. Um, now... Lastly, just because you're you're a portfolio manager, you manage quite a few portfolios in the pension fund, I'm just trying to see if there are any similarities between what you do um, as a manager of large funds to the average retail investors listening to this. Um, um, What are the lessons or what considerations do you put in when constructing a portfolio that an average retail investor can learn from even in their own investing practice so that they can construct their own personal portfolios uh, just like the professionals do, sort of. Okay. And so for pension industry, right, it is really, really heavily regulated, as I said earlier. And based on the multi-fund structure that has been enacted from the Pension Reform Act, right? So for portfolio managers, depending on the fund which you manage, which really are stated as your fund, one to fund for there are actually stipulated guidelines as to the asset class. So as I mentioned, so for example, if you're a fund and two manager, you are only able to do variable income up to 55%. So it is now within this scope that your different and technical abilities can now come into this. But what you specifically have, obviously, is the fact that your capital preservation is has to be like the bedrock of the portfolio. Your capital preservation um instruments typically be your government denominated fixed income instrument. So it is on top of the capital preservation that you can now take some tactical decision as to um getting exposure to the very variable income in form of companies equity and the the value positioning of fixed income instruments and the like. But the key thing would always be you start from a from a base of capital preservation, which would be investing in, in good government bonds. And then you take it to stop a, 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 a not higher by buying the um, fixed income instrument of top corporate, which will typically be um, corporate instrument that, that actually have good ratings. So those at least will give you a good solid drop to your investment. It is then after that you can now start moving into the variable, variable income in form of buying equities and share. So this also can actually be implemented in individual personal investment where 
if you want to start an investment, for me personally, I would advise you that first of all, start with the relatively stable ones. And as your world are full, then you are now looking, start looking at the variable form of investment. So you start with the good fixed income base and then you grow up from, from there. Absolutely, absolutely. So to distill what you have just said for the average retail investor, um, the safety of your capital is definitely much more important than the um, returns that you are trying to chase. So as you construct your portfolio, think of safety first. So safety first before um, aggressive um, combinations or aggressive decisions. Um it's been such a wonderful time having a chat with you. Thank you so much. I've learned quite a lot about my pensions and um, I've made some certain decisions today. But just before we let you go, sir, any final words for the average retail investor listening? Uh, how can they improve their practice? Any final words or thoughts for them? Um, yes. So um, the Nigeria pension industry, right, compared to other developed country pensions, it's still more like in the young or infancy stage. But since what we have seen in the last three, five years, especially emanating from the reform act in 2014, we have actually seen a continuous growth in the pension industry. So what we still see is that a whole lot of people, especially those in the informal sector, are still not benefiting from this pension scheme and obviously the power of compounding interest. So the word typically would be, so for you in the formal sector, first of all, be sure that um, you are within this scheme. And if you are in the informal sector, you have to try and reach out to one of the PFAs to at least onboard you into the fund five, which is the um which is the fund that is allocated for people in the informal sector. So one has to start making the conscious decision to actually start putting um your portion of today's world just to be able to meet future liability work when you become um a retiree. So it's actually important to start making those strategic big decisions. And also, what we still see is that this industry will keep getting better. So I know there are there are already talks going going on as to the as to including some form of foreign investment portion into the local retiree account to be able to edge some form of um, currency risk. But before that, transfer one even as to start and um, trying to save up, trying to start building your your capital. And also, um, recently was the um, equity contribution for mortgage conversation, which has now been implemented, which is also a good thing. So imagine that maybe when we started this um, RSA contribution early enough, say in your early 20s, and then maybe when you are, when you are at the age of 35, 40, you and your spouse you decide to at least pick up the house. This, your equity contribution from, from your RSA balance has grown over the years and actually be a good key for you to be able to be just be able to purchase your mortgage then, which is one of the benefits of actually starting your RSA early, early in life. So these and other many more things are what we would also be introducing to the pension team. So I'd encourage everyone to actually try and open a pension RSA account and act, act actively monitor and do your account also to your voluntary contribution. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. We, we certainly can't say thank you enough. It's been very, very educational. And um, I believe um, uh, the, the average retail investor listening also sends their regards. Um, if you wouldn't mind, maybe sometime in the future, we would like to bring you back just to have some further conversations. 
Oh, you just melted my heart. Thank you, sir. 